everybody. Welcome to this week's conversation, Sheltered in Place. Uh, I'm really excited about this conversation. Um, I, I have a very, very special guest, and I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read his uh, a bio here in a second. Uh, but he's, uh, he's uh, one of the hero uh, healthcare workers on the front line. Uh, working uh, in New York City right now, which uh, I think uh, is probably, and we'll talk about this, but probably the epicenter uh, for COVID-19 here in the, in the world, I believe, uh, at the moment. Uh, but I'm going to uh, bring on uh, Dr. Josh Davis. And uh, Dr. Josh Davis was born in the Bronx, but he grew up in Rockland County, New York. He studied romance languages at Binghamton University before obtaining his MD at New York Medical College. He completed his residency in internal medicine at, oh, I got to move this over for a second. <laughs> uh, he, he completed his residency in internal medicine at the Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center at the Harvard Medical School, and he served another year there as chief medical resident. After that, he began a fellowship in pulmonary and critical care medicine at New York Presbyterian Hospital at the Weill Cornell, Medis- at Weill Cornell Medicine. Throughout his career, he's put a strong focus on medical education, including using technology like high-fidelity simulation. And right now, Josh is on the front line in the battle fighting COVID-19. And I am going to um, bring him in at this moment onto the um, And we should see him here in a second. So just, uh, just uh, hey, Josh, how's it going? Hey, Ron, how's it going? <laughs> going good. Um, getting a little bit of an echo on, on your end. So um, just while, uh, while people are joining, I'll just I'll share, the, share the, an interesting tidbit, interesting side note. Uh, Josh's mom, uh, Tammy Finkelstein Davis, and I graduated from Roosevelt High School in Yonkers, New York together um, a few years ago, <laughs> many, many years ago. A few years ago. <laughs> so it's, a, it's a, you know what? This is my issue on the audio. So let me, let me take care of that. Um, so, uh, there, we, we've got a, a connection there, but thank you so much for um, taking the time. I know that you're, you're really, really busy. Um, I, we talked a little bit beforehand and both of us help everybody who's, uh, hope everybody who's tuning in, uh, right now is, is safe, that their families are safe, that everybody's uh, staying healthy and everybody's getting through this crisis. And what we want to talk about is strategies to get through this crisis, stra- uh, ways that we can not only get through the crisis, but get through stronger, more unified than ever to basically use this crisis as an opportunity, uh, an opportunity to come together, um, and so that's what that's what conversation sheltered in place is all about, and uh, and that's uh, that's what we're going to talk about. So, Josh, can you just start off by just giving us uh, you know a, a normal day down there at New York Presby- Presbyterian? Right now, you're in your apartment, you know, mm-hmm. not far not far from the hospital uh, over right. on the uh, Upper East Side uh, of Manhattan, and um, can you just walk us through, you know, what a normal day is uh, down there right now? Yeah, I mean, a normal day, uh, you know, in some in some ways is is not very different from from my normal day in the sense that you know it's coming to the hospital and working in an intensive care unit. Um, I think the things that are pretty different from it, the normal day, are really um, a lot a lot more critically ill patients, um, a lot more critically ill patients with sort of medical problems, not surgery or trauma or things like that. Um, And a lot of patients that are in really similar conditions and similar situations of having a hard time breathing. It's, uh, it's kind of, I mean, it's impressive the way, the way I sort of see it is how quickly my colleagues have been able to mobilize um, and really allow for us to take care of the huge volume of patients, which is the big change of what things are normally like for us. You know, I think on a given day, maybe there'll be seven or so um, doctors from my from my particular division in the hospital, you know, the pulmonary and critical care. Whereas now with this pandemic and the number of patients who need our help, uh, there's probably like 25 of us per day um, in, in the hospital. So there's really, there's a ton of people who are there and everybody just really mobilized. So to me, that's, it's kind of inspiring. And it's not just people from my division, it's people all all throughout the hospital, honestly, um, really trying to use their expertise in a way to take care of patients um, as a a team, like a really holistic, holistic way of taking care of everyone. So, you know, one of the things that we've been talking about um, during these conversations is managing fear 
uh, fear mm -hmm. and stress and anxiety and everything else. And, you know, all, all of the healthcare workers that are there with you are putting themselves and, and frankly, their families in danger by coming there every day and, and working there. So how, how do you guys, I mean, is there any strategies for dealing with that fear and, and, and what, what keeps you guys driven and motivated? Yeah, I mean, it's, it is scary. I, th I think everybody really feels it. Um, you know, it's sometimes it just sort of feels like you're staring down danger or even, you know, critical illness and death. And I think the, the best way that I've found to, to try to combat it, and this is what's worked for me is just, you know, when I am at work is being able to rely on my coworkers who are all in the same situation and, and support each other in that way. And, and acknowledging that, I think the first thing really just acknowledging that there, that we are afraid and that everyone feels that way, you know, and going from there to kind of say like, this is, this is our real world right now, as, as surreal as it feels um, and to help each other get through it um, just by really approaching things as a team and trying to laugh whenever you have the opportunity to, um, to eat whenever you have the opportunity to, which there's been no, there's been no shortage of that. I think there's been an incredible amount of generosity that I've seen throughout throughout the hospital in terms of places in the hospital donating food, restaurants around the hospital donating food. And then throughout the community, you know, one of the researchers, um, one of the PhDs in our division set up a GoFundMe because she wanted to feel like she could help in some way since she's not a medical doctor. And within a day, she raised over $10,000. And wow. since that point, she's raised almost $50,000, maybe even more by now, which has really just been to buy, you know, all the doctors and nurses and respiratory therapists and aides and everybody who's helping to keep the hospital running um, to buy food. So that, you know, that's, I think, one way everybody sort of bonds over that. And the other part is trying to take care of yourself when you're not at work, you know, and, and for many people who are, um, who are working from home, it's kind of hard because as I, as I would imagine, I, you know, I don't work from home very often. Um, but, you know, I think the lines get blurred pretty easily as to what, what's work life and what's home life. Um, so trying to really set boundaries as best as you can in terms of when you're going to do your work and when you're going to do your home life. Um, and I don't know, I try to exercise when I can, even if it's just a short thing or go outside for, um, a walk and get some fresh air, um, you know, wearing a mask, of course, but, um, you know, just those things to try to give your day a little bit of routine. Because um, I think, you know, the first few days of people being locked down, it sort of feels like a long weekend. And then week two hits, week three hits, and no one knows what day it is. And there's, you know, an impression in your couch. And, and um, you know, I think trying to at least give a routine and not just treat it like a weekend. Uh, yeah has been helpful for me. I don't know. What have you found that you just keeping you from getting stir crazy? <laughs> well, all, all of the above and getting out, getting out whenever I can in a safe, in a safe way. Um, um, staying in touch with folks using the technology that's available to us oh, to, yeah. to stay in touch and, and to see, you know, and to do that as much uh, in, with video as we can. Um, so that it's not just, you know, a disembodied voice on a phone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure. Least, at least you can see uh, facial expressions. Um, but I want to I want to open it up to to the folks who are tuning in on Instagram Live. And if you have a question, if if there's, if there's a comment you have or whatever, I also want to ask everybody if there's any problems with the audio or, or anything, let us know about it because I am getting an echo, um, Josh, when you're speaking. But um, but that could just be me. So but if it's if everybody's getting that, uh, let us know. So so let us. Uh, hey, Laura, thanks for tuning in. Um, just, to, you know, if you guys have questions, uh, let us know. Um, so I know that you there's there's a lot of teamwork at the hospital right now. And a lot of folks are um, kind of stepping outside of their normal jobs, right? I mean, they're, they're mm -hmm. filling in and can you talk a little bit about, um, you know, the expansion of teams and, <laughs> and how people are people are stepping in to fill, fill the gaps where needed? Yeah, I mean, it's been really awesome. I think, because the overwhelming majority of, of care in the hospital now is uh, really dedicated to COVID patients and not what it's normally like where there's a full variety of things that we see in all areas of specialty and needs in the hospital. So, you know, other services in the hospital that might, that are not as busy now because they're not seeing as many of the cases that they would usually see before all this. Um, so they've been sort of re not repurposed, but sort of, taken their skills and put them to good use in a way to um, 
free us up um, to work on other things um, or take care of more patients. You know, so I think of um, uh, the um, the CRNAs, which is a, a registered nurse anesthetists, which usually work in the operating room to help take care of patients undergoing surgery. Um, they've been mobilized to now be a part of our intubation team to help um, when patients need to be uh, intubated or have a breathing tube put in. So they're part of the team that can help manage the, the uh, breathing machine as well as all the medications and help the anesthesiologist to put the breathing tube in. So that's one way that we've sort of mobilized them and they've been amazing. They're really so helpful. You know, other areas in the hospital, um, some other doctors um, and doctors in training that have other areas of expertise for example, I can think of um, our, our surgeons and interventional radiology doctors who um, have been helping to uh, put in special kinds of IVs and lines uh, for monitoring our critically ill patients. Um, it's, you know, that's saved a lot of time for, for us to be able to you know, help take care of other patients when right, we don't right. have to do some of the procedural things that we usually do to manage these patients. And we can ask somebody who, who has this, you know, the same skill but is not otherwise occupied. Yeah. Now, do you think these things are temporary or do, you, or do you think some of these that will carry through and become new procedures or new ways of doing I think, business? I think once things start to get back to normal, and I do think things are going to get back to normal, the bigger question as to when that's going to be, I don't know if anybody knows the answer to that. But um, I don't think that's, I think, I think it's going to go back to how it was before um, in the sense of um, people doing jobs uh, in a different in a different way, because I think the things that they usually do are going to start coming back into the hospital. Yeah. I think one of the things that's definitely going to stay um, has been the camaraderie between everyone, uh, which has really been awesome. Because, you know, I think there from what I've seen is that you, we tend to practice medicine in, in a silo. Like you're, you're in your area of expertise and you work with the people in that area and the pretty close areas. Um, and so people who are maybe not necessarily working as closely with you, you don't have that kind of working relationship. And so now I think it's been amazing to see this mobilization. I think, you know, a lot of the words I use are things like, that are like, you know, military type words because it feels like a war and it feels like you need to just recruit everybody and, and get everybody to be working on the same team for the same, for the same reasons. Yeah. I think that's going to stay. So, so we had a question come in and I apologize because it scrolled too fast for me to see uh, who, who, put it out, but I think maybe the phrasing of the question might give us some hints. It's, it said, um, how long are you contagious for uh, after you're being diagnosed, son? <laughs> I <laughs> so, wonder who that's from. I, I, yeah. I, it could be from your mom. I'm not sure. It could be from her. Uh, that's a really good question. And it doesn't really have a simple answer because it, it sort of depends on when you got diagnosed. Um, I, what we're generally recommending is that if you do have, um, if you are diagnosed with um, coronavirus, that um, you stay on quarantine for at least three days from the last time that you have had a fever. Um, and that means, you know, if, if you've been taking Tylenol that doesn't, and you haven't had fever, it sort of doesn't, that doesn't count. You want to see that you don't have any fever um, off of any, you know, um, uh, any medicines, um, and at least seven days from the time that the symptoms start. Um, and everyone's heard the sort of 14 day um, quarantine period. And that's really been the recommendation because most people will, uh, almost all people um, will develop symptoms by 14 days after having been exposed to the virus. So I think that's why some people say, oh, this 14 day cutoff, where it sort of means if you think you've been exposed, you know, it's a, it's a good idea to keep yourself quarantined for 14 days. And if you don't develop symptoms after those 14 days, it's very unlikely that you, you know, caught it in that exposure. But if you do catch it, then um, three days from the last fever and seven days from the onset of, of symptoms is generally the recommendation that, that we have now at least. Okay. All right. Uh, uh, Pam Evans, 44, asked, you know, what are hospital leaders doing to keep up morale? Uh, they've done a lot of stuff, actually. Uh, first, they gave us, I can't, this is definitely not the case for all hospitals, because I've seen many hospitals where um, the healthcare team has had to take pay cuts and actually pretty significant pay cuts. Um, at my hospital, they actually gave us a bonus, which was very nice. Um, and uh, in addition to all of that, they've been bringing uh, lunch every day all around the hospital to everybody. 
Um, they have, <clears throat> in addition to all the construction that's been going on in the hospital to convert regular hospital floors into intensive care units, because that's how, how many critically ill patients we've had, um, they have also been building sort of um, like areas of uh, like rest and recovery areas for um, people throughout the hospital um, on all the different floors in the hospital and this one large atrium area that we have in the medical school. So areas for when people to have a, you know, can, can actually sneak away and get a break, can relax somewhere comfortable. Um, there's, you know, food and drink there and televisions and places to charge your phone and that kind of stuff. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. The first uh, conversation we had on Conversation Shelter in Place was with um, somebody named Jacob Marshall. Uh, and what Jacob's doing, along with his wife, Hazen, and uh, a team of folks, um, they're down at Mount Sinai Hospital. And they're setting up uh, um, restorative areas where, um, you know, they have a projector that, sh that you, you know, with a voice activated, you can select different scenes, a campfire, a beautiful, a beautiful stream. Uh, they, they have um, aroma therapy going on. They have um, oh, yeah. really, you know, um, meditative uh, music and lots of, lots of support. Uh, and I was talking to, to those guys last night and I said, I was going to have you on. I said, oh, if they want, if, if you guys want them to come set something up up there, he might even yeah. be in. We'll see, we'll see if he's tuning in. But, <laughs> but, they, but um, we did, we did the episode from uh, Mount Sinai and, uh, in the space, uh, and I think it's re it's really making a difference. Um, yeah, that's really cool. Yeah, there's so many things that they've been trying to do to help uh, give people, even if it's just like a mental break of you know three minutes, like when people come by. You know, they've had um, some of our social worker specialists, particularly the ones that that generally work with our pediatric patients, who have since been moved out of our hospital into the um, uptown um, near Presbyterian campus, um, and they've sort of come by every day with a little trolley and a few people and they're there to like, you know, boost morale. They have a bunch of snacks and beverages and aromatherapy and all these kinds of things. Awesome. Um, which has always been a nice uh, little, even if it's like a five minute, not even five minute break to just take your mind yeah, off of things. Exactly. For a minute. Hey guys, if, if, um, if we don't get to your question, then please send it again because um, uh, we're, this is such an engaging conversation that uh, sometimes I'm, I'm missing the, the ones as they come through. But I think, you know, what we're, what we're just talking about basically is self-care, right? Or, or mm -hmm. you know, it, in the space business, you know, we talk about expeditionary behavior. And the, and the first rule of expeditionary behavior is um, you don't do your team or you don't do anybody any good if, if you can't function at 100%. If, if you're sick, if you're burnt out, if you're too tired, uh, and so it's it's really important. You have a responsibility and obligation as a team member to make sure that you're you know firing on all cylinders. And uh, it, it appears that the leadership in your hospital realizes that and is is trying to do things to to, to make sure that uh, that uh, everybody's firing on all cylinders. And so it really and that goes that just doesn't go for people working in a hospital. That goes for everybody. Um, you know, we're in a marathon, not a sprint right now, and we need to, we need to pace ourselves to figure out how we're going to get through this in the long run, uh, and we need to take care of ourselves. Okay, there's a long question there, and the first sentence of it I can't read. Many people are avoiding going to doctors if they don't have to, sufficient insurance coverage, uh, and do you think it's good system for the future? I don't, oh, Medicare for all, is that what it is? In the, I can't read the first sentence. Yeah, that's what it says. Would Medicare for all be beneficial in this time? Yeah, that's a that's a good question. I mean, I, I have seen that, and I do think a lot of people, um, for a variety of reasons, are not seeking medical care, uh, whether it's because they don't have good insurance um, or um, undocumented um, people living, you know, in the U.S. who are afraid of other repercussions by seeking care and identifying themselves as here. Yeah, I think that is a problem. We've seen, uh, we've been hearing reports, at least in New York City, about people, lots of people um, dying at home. And it makes me worried that, that that could be playing a role as to why people are not seeking medical care if they're concerned about how much these things are going to cost them. Um, you know, I think it, my personal opinion is that healthcare is a human right. And I think that um, in a country as advanced as ours, that everybody should be guaranteed it for an affordable way um, and that the primary intention of healthcare insurance should be to protect us as people. I think that's that's one of the obligations of government is to protect us as their citizens. And I think health healthcare insurance should have that same role um, and that's the same objective and it shouldn't be profits being the first objective. 
Yeah. So, you know, I don't know what kind of system would work best for this country. I think it would be, it's not an easy question to, to answer because we're just such a big country and we're so different from all the other countries that have done it successfully. Um, but I do think that we have to figure out how to make it, make this work for, for our country. So one thing to talk about real quick on that, on that topic is, you know, if, if everybody had access to, to healthcare, mm -hmm. um, obviously, each of those individuals themselves can benefit, especially if it's preventative healthcare and not, you know, you're pre preventing right. problems, not fixing problems. But how does that affect everybody else? I mean, what, so, so if, if, if I'm insured and I don't have to, you know, why would I, why would I, you know, how does it impact me if somebody else has, has health insurance? That's a yeah, question. I mean, I, admittedly, yeah. That's a <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think it leads us to a good discussion. I mean, I, on a, the the most the most basic way I think about it is that when people are healthiest, and that's not just their physical health, it's mental health, it's everything, that they're able to participate in our society to the highest degree that they that they're capable of, and I think that that just further enriches our own society by having it full of people who are happy and healthy and can you know be useful in everyone's own unique way in our society. Yeah. So I think, and then I mean, there's a lot of other arguments about. Uh, um, costs and everything, um, and how that affects uh, health, the healthcare system in general. When you have a really large healthcare system, um, and when everybody's insured versus when people are seeking emergency care and things like that. Right, exactly. Yeah, pay a little bit now or pay a lot later type of thing. Right. Right. So, and I apologize, I didn't see the name, but there was a question on what is the most effective medication. That's another really million dollar question there. I, I think, you know, we're learning more and more every single day. In fact, in the last 24 to 36 hours, I read three, um, three pretty important pieces of, uh, of literature. Um, and, you know, I think there's been a lot in the news um, from a variety of, of sources um, claiming benefits from certain medications like chloroquine, uh, which by the way is not a medication that we use in the U.S. and um, and hydroxychloroquine, which is similar to it, um, which has been sort of touted as an anti-malaria medicine, which hasn't been used for malaria probably in 40 years. Um, and nowadays it's more actually used to help treat people with autoimmune diseases like rheumatoid arthritis and lupus and many other conditions. Um, I think that's probably been the medication that's had been the most buzz about. And I'll say that in my experience of just having given this medication to patients is it doesn't seem to make people better. And some of the data is sort of starting to suggest that now too, is that it doesn't seem to be necessarily harming people in a grave way. More people who are taking it have side effects, which is not surprising all medications have side effects. Um, fortunately, the side effects from hydroxychloroquine, the majority of people who get them, it's more minor, but still, you know, I don't want to have the stomach upset and all those things that go along with it, yeah. um, especially if there's no proven benefit. And so far, there really hasn't been much proven benefit, even in some of the better conducted studies um, that have come out in the last, you know, 48 hours. You know, and I was actually just recently talking about today uh, with a friend of mine who is also a pulmonary ICU doctor um, about just our own anecdotal experience and what we thought, you know, of the medication. And in general, there aren't many viruses that I can think of off the top of my head that get better really fast with an antiviral medicine. Um, you know, like the same way that a, a bacteria infection gets tends to get better pretty quickly with antibiotics, except oftentimes viral infections need to run their course in order for people to recover from them. And so that's sort of why it doesn't surprise me that the medicines that we at least have so far haven't really turned things around since I think probably tincture of time might be one of the best medicines, at least for patients who, um, have a more mild or even moderate, um, degree of sickness from, from this virus. The so people who yeah. are really, really sick and ICU, I think is a different story. And I, and there's obviously a danger with self-medication too, where um, people are, are, are not taking the advice of experts. Um, yeah. And uh, in my, I, you know, I'm in Tucson, Arizona right now. And, and in our town of Tucson, a few weeks ago, uh, a couple took what they thought was chloroquine. I think they, I think they took some, end up taking something else. But on the advice that they were getting over the internet, uh, they thought that this was something that they could take to, to prevent themselves from getting uh, coronavirus. And the and the husband died, and the and I know the wife was uh, critically ill um, from 
from taking this up. So, so misinformation is, um, you, you know, not helpful in this, in this situation. Yeah. I honestly think misinformation has been has just been one of the biggest hindrances to um, to really effectively managing this. Um, less so, I think, in the hospital because I think you know many of us have had always have a healthy dose of skepticism when we hear medical information to say like, how good is this information, and can we apply it to to our patients? Um, but I think the things that um, that worry me about the spread of misinformation is that people who ha come from a position of power, this is not just talking about people in politics, because I was thinking about this and saw some tweet this morning from Elon Musk, um, and, um, you know, who, who have a voice of influence, meaning lots of people listen to them, um, but may not necessarily have the training or the knowledge or the information to make those kinds of claims. And I think that's where things are dangerous is that if, you know, in my mind, like you should, you should always defer to the person who's the expert in that field. It doesn't matter if it's medicine or not. You know, if my car is broken, I'm not going to try to fix it myself. I'm going to bring it to the mechanic. That's why, um, that's why, that's why we're having this conversation. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, you know, I think like misinformation is, is one of the things that really contributes to fear, sort of getting back to what we talked about earlier. Right. Um, and so, you know, in the way I sort of mitigate that is by really trying to um, actively avoid sources of misinformation. Um, you know, I do not feel that the White House press briefings have been giving us accurate information. Um, you know, I have been trying to read more information. There hasn't been a ton from the Centers for Disease Control as much lately, um, but more, um, you know, through other, you know, um, areas of reporting, like the New York Times, for example, um, and other sources throughout, you know, across the world. So, you know, I try to rely on those sources that I um, think are, are pretty reliable um, and uh, not from ones that are just going to sort of instill more fear um, or, or misinformation. You know, I think the thing that has upset me um, recently was seeing about all the, um, this protesting going on. And, you know, I'm certainly not saying that we shouldn't express our opinions and our rights, um, but uh, this isn't like any other normal time. Um, the risk to going out and gathering in public is literally a life or death risk, literally. And not just for the people who are out there demonstrating, but for all the people that they love and care about. And this, um, is, this is coming from somebody who's seeing people die every day from coronavirus, right? I mean, this is, this is real. I mean, yeah, it's like, I mean, there the conspiracy theories that have been sort of um, going rampant across the internet is is just one thing that really scares me. And I think that people are hearing, oh, the curve is flattening, which does seem to be the case and is really, really encouraging to me. Um, but I think what people may misunderstand is that the, the flattening of the curve means that we're getting to the peak and the peak is not the trough. It's not the bottom of this. Right. It means that we're still getting new people coming into the hospital. We're still getting new sick patients who need to be intubated and we're still losing people. People are still dying. Right. So, you know, the peak doesn't mean that this is over. It means that we right. just need that what we've done this last month yeah. or so has worked and we need to keep doing it. You need right, to keep right. staying at home and keeping the same precautions that have helped keep people safe over the last month. Yeah. So a, a couple of questions came in that I'll, and I'll give it, I'll throw them both out there so I don't forget. Uh, but unless I've already forgotten, <laughs> but one is, uh, is six feet, uh, enough or, or yeah. is the virus travel more than six feet? And the other question was, uh, has there been any use of uh, intravenous vitamin C? Has that helped? Yeah. Um, so I think the six feet recommendation is enough. Um, and it particularly reassures me, um, when people are wearing masks, which is, um, now been, I don't know, ordered or I don't know what the, the word is for it, but that, uh, has been the rule now in New York state. And I, and the centers for disease control also recommends that, um, that everybody wear some sort of face covering. It doesn't have to be a surgical mask and it definitely doesn't have to be and shouldn't be an N95 respirator mask. Those should be safe for us in the hospital. Um, but even something as simple as a scarf, um, or bandana to cover the nose and mouth. You know, I, I have been trying to keep my sanity and get some fresh air and I go outside every day for a walk wearing a mask and I see people with the mask like up here and down here and on this, and it's not covering your nose and mouth. So I think covering of the nose and mouth helps to protect everybody else around you um, and probably protect you a bit as well. So I would say that keeping, keeping six feet um, and wearing a mask uh, are probably the two best things. And, and they seem to be effective. The, you know, it, the curve is flattening. So. 
And the, oh, the vitamin C question. Yeah. Uh, we have not been using vitamin C. Um, I know it's been studied in the past, not in the setting of COVID and other types of um, critical illness like septic shock, for example, and has not been shown to be effective. Um, so we have not been using it because there's no data to suggest that it will help um, with COVID. Um, and there's no data to suggest that it really helps with um, conditions like COVID either. So okay. I think that's why we're not using it. All right, a question came in asking how your hospital is um, supplied. You know, is there enough ventilators? There's enough mask gowns? You know, what uh, are there needs? Yeah. We uh, fortunately are doing pretty well when it comes to ventilator supply. I'll say a few weeks ago, we got, we didn't run out, but we got really, really, really close to running out of ventilators, like scarily close. Um, we, uh, I just got a notification that we just got another shipment of ventilators, which is great. And so we're able to distribute them amongst our, our, um, near Presbyterian healthcare system. Uh, I think, you know, <laughs> do we have enough, uh, personal protective equipment? I think we have enough for what I consider the new normal, you know, prior to, prior to this, um, all masks, you know, you, there are single time use when you're going in to see a patient, you know, if you have a cold. If I have a cold and I come to work, I wear a mask all day long, the same mask, and it's to protect everybody else, not myself. Um, and in other situations, sometimes you're wearing a mask for the opposite reason. Um, now there's enough. If my mask breaks, I can get a new one, but I can't get a new one until it breaks. Um, and so that's not something that people are, are used to practicing with. You know, I had the opportunity um, during my residency training to practice medicine abroad um, in Botswana, which was an amazing experience, um, and uh, you know, for many, many reasons, but particularly helpful now um, to sort of get used to and have had prior experience in practicing in um, under-resourced settings. Yeah. So we we have enough. We could definitely use more. You know, once once we get, I don't think I'll I'll truly believe we have enough until we're back to the the phase of being able to use single use items for their single use intention. Right. And, and of course, that's one hospital. I'm sure every hospital is different. Yeah, I think there's been a variety. I think most people, most hospitals have had to reuse things, but there are other hospitals who've had nothing, who, yeah. who are, are really, really low. So I, I would consider us fortunate. Maybe that's just the optimist in me, but I, I would say that we're fortunate. Um, the Streaming Museum wants to know where we can find the most reliable non-political information. Yes, uh, that's a great, uh, and I, uh, whoever that person is also included in their links, Dr. Fauci, who I think is a great source of information. He is definitely the leading expert in our country, and I would argue even in the world, in how to manage pandemics. You know, he's been doing this since the um, early 80s and the outbreak of um, HIV, um, and he really, really is um, an expert in this field, and I trust what he says as my like, you know, absolute truth source. Um, but I agree, all the other sources that you listed there are things that I also myself uh, rely upon, the CDC, the World Health Organization, um, CNN, the New York Times are places that I usually um, get most of my information. The other stuff I'm getting information from is, is, you know, the medical literature, which, you know, not everybody has access to. Um, and so we try to hope that there are people reporting on that um, in a way that, um, that's sort of just easy for everyone to read and, and, and know about. Okay. Uh, Brett Davis 227 asks, uh, does COVID-19 kill or does it lead to something else? Um, well, it seems that the virus itself is what's causing a lot of problems. Um, the thing that most people are, are really stricken with is really severe breathing failure, um, which is caused by injury to, um, injury to the lungs and you know, the, the breathing system by the virus. So it's not the virus itself, but it's the effects that the virus has on um, organs, you know, the lungs being the primary one, but we've seen it cause problems with the heart. We've seen it cause problems in the, um, in the blood vessels, like people developing blood clots, um, either in their lungs, in their skin, in their kidneys, um, in the brain, even leading to things like stroke. Um, so, you know, we're, we are learning every single day we're getting more and more information about how this virus causes people to get really sick. So that's, I think, where we are today and it could change tomorrow. Right, right. So maybe, maybe to change the, change the tone a little bit, can you, can you talk about what happens every day at, at 7 p.m.? Oh yeah, it's pretty, it's actually pretty amazing. I haven't taken a recording of it, otherwise I would share it with you, but I do open my window to it when, uh, when I'm home. Um, in New York, basically every day at seven o'clock, there's been about three minutes of cheers and applause, people leaning out their window, banging pots and pans, 
Um, I live uh, just down the block from a firehouse. They're like blaring all the sirens. Somebody around me has a very large drum that they're banging upon and everybody just sort of stops in their tracks if you're out on the street and is cheering and applauding for uh, not just the people who are working in the hospital. I think that's sort of where it got started somewhere overseas. I think in Italy, people were clapping that they live close by to the hospital. But I, I mean, I personally like to think that it's not just for all the hospital workers, but for all the essential workers, everybody who's risking their life, people who work in a grocery store, people who are delivering your mail and taking away your trash and recycling, all these things. Um, truly appreciate that. And the irony, I was laughing about it with a friend, is that at least for the healthcare workers, we're all still in the hospital at seven o'clock. You know, when the shift ends at seven, it doesn't mean that you just walk out the door. You know, you have to talk to the person who's coming in for the night and give sign out. And so, you know, yes, you may end at seven, but you don't leave the hospital until 730 or eight. So, you know, maybe eight o'clock would be a better time if I got to pick. But you know, I think the I think the intention is, is really yeah. awesome and it's really heartening. So this is probably a good that's probably a good story to segue into what you hope comes of this, you know, we're, we're, we're paying this horrible price. And um, because we're paying a price, we have an opportunity potentially to get a benefit from it. So, since we're paying for a price, paying the price anyway. So what are some of the things that you hope come out of this, this uh, crisis? Yeah, you know, I think just some of the things that are, uh, I think of it as sort of two basic categories. Some of it are like medical and health kind of things. And the other part of just like us as a, as a community and a society, you know, I think some of the basic precautions would be, would be great. So people should continue the very strong regimen of hand-washing and wearing a mask in public. I don't think we'll have to wear a mask in public always, but particularly if you have a cold or are sick and are going out in public, other people don't want to catch your cold um, just like you didn't want to catch it. So I think it's a good idea. You know, our society has embraced wearing masks less than other places throughout the world. Um, so I think it would be great if we continue to um, embrace that. Um, and the other part about Especially it is- Especially if it would be a lot easier if we make it a fashion statement, if, the, if you know- Yeah, exactly. Pretty... Now they've become pretty fashionable, so. <laughs> yeah, I definitely agree. Um, and, uh, and then just, again, trusting, trusting experts um, when it comes to anything, not just the, not just health. I think that should, that's my, the way I live my life is I trust the person who knows it best to help uh, make it so that I can understand whatever the issue is. So I think the other side of that coin too is not trusting people who are not experts when they're talking, yeah. outside, when they're talking outside of their field of expertise so, yes, or, to sure. or to at least challenge it with, before taking, taking it at face value. Um, and then, yeah, I, and then, and then coughing, that in that that, that coughing with a mask though yeah well coughing yeah. no coughing <laughs> that information out over the internet so mm. for, every, to, for everybody else to be infected by by uh, misinformation yeah uh, and, 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 and i don't think of misinformation as a virus right i mean we have a responsibility each and every one of us has a responsibility before we put something out to make sure what, what we're putting out has been fact-checked especially if, it, if it's life or death type stuff yeah i could not i could not agree any more strongly about that um and then the other stuff I think is like the stuff about our society, you know, the support that I've seen for people rallying together is just, you know, is really amazing. People, there are a lot of people who live, at least in New York City, and I've, I've read and heard stories about it all around the country, um, who are homebound, who have a really difficult time just with their regular day-to-day -day tasks. And I've heard stories and I've seen people um, just really be amazing humans and, and buy groceries and delivering meals and food. Um, you know, uh, has been just one really great way to help support people who are already having, who are already struggling before all this. And now, you know, can sometimes feel like you're really just on the, on the edge of a cliff and one little gust of wind can knock you over. So, you know, that support of reaching out and checking in on people, especially who you think are having a harder time. And even the ones who you, you don't necessarily think are having a hard time. Um, I think it's really helping to create um, and foster volunteership um, as well, which I think is um, just one of those things that really enriches our community. Yeah, and I think, you know, maybe a first step towards that is to be more observant to, mm -hmm. you know, if you haven't heard from a neighbor in a while or haven't, you know, new, usually you yeah. see the neighbor out putting the garbage out on Tuesdays and the, the garbage hasn't been out, you know, or, or whatever reason, if you notice that somebody is having a, you know, a hard time concentrating or, you know, have you been getting enough sleep? You know, are you okay? You know, asking those type of questions, I think is, is, is really important to, to basically be, be looking out for telltale signs that, that uh, people are, are, are having problems or having issues or 
or being yeah, challenged. I think a lot of people also are hesitant to do that because they may they may not necessarily feel empowered to know what to do with that information. And I think, uh, and that can be scary for people, especially if they're afraid of what the answer and their response might be that they are hearing that somebody's having a hard time. And I think, I mean, that's something that I face often. And the way I just sort of think about it is just really trying to be a good listener. It's just listen to what people are going through, you know, and echo their sentiments when you, especially when you share those sentiments um, and, and seeing if you, if there's any way that you can particularly help them, whether or not it's physically helping them to do something or, you know, offer suggestions and um, just, especially if someone's really need, just trying to, just trying to listen, I think uh, has, has served me pretty well. Yeah. Um, are there are, besides the, the the daily seven p.m. thing? Are there are there any other things that give you uh, hope for the future? You know, any else, yeah, other I things mean, that you're seeing? Tons and tons of awesome things. So, I mean, the seven p.m. cheers are really really cool. Um, last week when I was walking into the hospital, somebody decorated the sidewalk, um, just with sidewalk chalk on the way into the hospital with a ton of positive messages for, you know, for a few blocks worth of, of things and, and actually some pretty nice art too. Um, and then it rained and then they came back and drew more new things, um, which has been really cool to just sort of like, as people are walking in and out, um, you know, sometimes downtrodden at the end of it, eyes down on the ground, there's nice messages to sort of cheer you up to remind you what, why you're here and what you're doing this for and that you're, you're helping people. Um, and so that's been, that's been really cool. I'd love to see, I'd really love to see that. Um, yeah. um, you know, you, you kind of touched on this a little bit and maybe it's worth diving in a little deeper is, you know, we've, we've kind of redefined, not redefined, that's not the right word. We've exposed who essential workers are. Right. Yeah. And, and I mean, everybody's job is important. Every, everybody is a contributing member to society, or at least they should be. But in times of crisis, um, there are key professions that, that basically, you know, we can't do without. And, right. uh, you know, I've been in some professions where heroism is associated with it, you know, whether you're fighting in combat or launching into space on a, on a <laughs> a controlled explosion. Um, so, so those are normally, you know, traditional things that, you know, heroism is applied to. Um, but we're kind of redefining that. I mean, you know, yeah. our, our heroes aren't wearing space helmets right now. They're, they're, are, are, aren't just wearing space helmets right now. You know, they're wearing all kinds of other gear. Um, and you touched on that. And so um, how can we, coming through this as a society, how can we better value, uh, you know, the people who we are absolutely positively counting on right now to yeah. make sacrifices and to and to put themselves at risk? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a really good question. The like we were saying earlier, you know, the definition of who are essential workers is not just people who work in a hospital. And, you know, it, people who work in a hospital are not just doctors and nurses. You know, there are so many other moving parts of the hospital, particularly of the clinical care team. Um, right now, at least our respiratory therapists are always amazing, but they're in really high demand. Those are experts in how to um, manage and connect patients with the ventilator. And uh, in addition to our aides and the pharmacists, everybody throughout the hospital, and then all the non-clinical staff that help keep the hospital clean and functioning effectively. Um, and then all of the myriad of people outside the hospital, people who are, like we mentioned earlier, people who work in the grocery store, people who are you know, delivering their mail, taking away the trash and recycling, um, you know, people working at the pharmacy, uh, in New York City, food delivery people <laughs> really working really hard, um, and so many other types of, uh, uh, of professions that I haven't mentioned. Many of those people, particularly the ones who don't necessarily work at a hospital, work barely minimum wage jobs that do not give them guaranteed benefits, which includes healthcare. Um, and many of these people are working multiple jobs just to be able to afford uh, their basic you know, their basic expenses to be able to support themselves and their families. Um, and I think, and I hope that this whole crisis, which I'm not just meaning that to apply to economic, but this whole crisis that's totally shaken our planet, when we are putting it back together, that we can really consider how we, how we're treating our essential workers and how we should be treating them. And I think part of that gets to the question that somebody mentioned earlier about universal health care. I think that is one component of it that 
people should never be afraid that they shouldn't go to the hospital um, or to a doctor's office because they're afraid they're not going to be able to afford their health care or that it could financially ruin them, which many, many Americans have been financially ruined from health care costs. Um, and I think that it should be more than just that. You know, I read uh, a really great article today in the New York Times that was talking about a lot of the economic impact on all of this. And it's, it cited a study where um, they noted four out of every 10 Americans are unable to afford a unplanned $400 expense. Um, and that, I mean, that really shook me that that, that many people in our country can't afford $400 expense and that, you know, we've been told and we've been touting that our economy is so strong, but why, if it's so strong, why are there so many people like many of our essential workers who live paycheck to paycheck yeah. that we're just not supporting our people the way that, that we should be and that we can be. Um, and that, you know, the reason for why that's the case, I think is, you know, multifold and, and it's not my area of expertise. So I don't want to proclaim anything because many of those are my personal opinion and I can't validate them as fact, but. Yeah. So, I mean, we've been having this conversation for a very, very long time. We, as a, as a country, um, and what my hope, just to piggyback on what you said, what my hope is, is that this crisis has opened our eyes mm -hmm. to basically re-engage in that conversation in a new way, in a new way that's not tainted by politics, a new way that that looks at the long term plan that realizes, you know, a lot of things that look good, you know, on the next shareholder report or next election cycle don't right. make any sense when you talk, you know, 10, 20 or start talking multi-generational. Yeah. And that we have the courage to set aside our differences. We have the courage to step, step outside of our special interests and our narrow interest and look at the greater good and look at um, look at it over a long time frame. And I think when we do that and we can put our politics aside and we can put all yeah. our differences aside and, and use this, this as, a, as a jump off point, uh, as a catalyst uh, to have a real conversation about how we can make sure that, you know, these, these folks are not wor worrying about a $400 expense that they didn't, they didn't plan for, or yeah. they're, they're not taking a, a, an ambulance ride to the, to the hospital yeah, because seriously. they'd rather, they'd rather die than, then incur that expense so on and put that expense on their family it's it, it, you know in 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 this great country of ours it's ridiculous that that we should be able to some, do better as some of our citizens live that way um yeah. so i want to want to start to wrap this up because we're, we're you know instagram is going to pull the plug on us and <laughs> um i want to ask you to to with to leave us with two um two words of advice the first thing is you know how can how can people get through this crisis um, in, in light of COVID nineteen? You know what uh, what precautions that can they they take? I mean, we've talked a lot about precautions, but you know, is there anything that that you know, one last bit of advice you want to leave people for? Uh, you know, avoiding getting sick themselves. If if somebody in their family gets does get sick, um, how how they can deal with that? I know you've been through some really um, disheartening and tragic situations with, with folks, um, and, and you know what what strategies we can have to get out this on the other side and and, and get out stronger. Yeah, I, I, those are really good questions, Ron. I think you know the uh, my the basic recommendation is still really good hand washing. Uh, and wearing a mask when you're out um, in public um, are probably the best way and, and, and staying home, like very huge emphasis on staying home, minimizing the amount of time um, that you need to get out of the house, obviously getting some fresh air, running errands, but, you know, don't go to the grocery store every day, try to limit it to once a week, all these types of things to limit your exposures to other people um, is the best way to protect yourself. It's kind of tough when somebody in your home um, may have gotten sick and I have seen many patients and with all the same last name because they're all family and they live together who have gotten sick. And we've heard horrible stories of families who've been really sick and from it. Uh, it, there's there's no good answer when you live in a small space with somebody about what's the best way to isolate yourself. I think wearing a mask was one of the best ways to protect yourself. And I think keep you know keeping a six foot distance are the two best things that we know. Um, how to isolate yourself in your own home. You know, I think that that's a more complicated question. And 
as unique to each person and each person's home living situation. But I think, you know, distance and nose mouth covering are the best ways to, to prevent that from happening. Um, I think, you know, the way I would sort of look at it and if I had to, the advice that I give and tell myself on a daily basis um, is that it, it, it's a daily basis that it is one day at a time all the news, all the information, the situation is changing on an even more frequently than daily basis. And so all we can do is just take one day at a time um, and try to just take the best care of ourselves, which includes protecting ourselves when we go out in public, but also all the other things that we have to do to protect our uh, mental and physical health at home, like exercising, eating well, uh, and then, you know, indulging a little bit too, because this is a really hard time and whether or not it's indulging on something good to eat or just cutting yourself some slack. Um, you know, this is, this is a weird time. Yeah. Uh, there's no other way to put it. Yeah. We need to not take ourselves so seriously all the, all the time. Yeah, for yeah. sure. Well, yeah, as, the, as the Yonkers girls have reminded us here, I think there's a yeah. handful of people from Yonkers that have been yeah. watching. And so just up, just I would be remiss if I didn't, uh, if I didn't call them out, I think I'd be more than remiss, but. Well, Dr. Josh, thank you so much. Uh, thank you for the conversation and sharing your insights. And, and I know your, your mom is really proud of you. Your family's really proud of you, <laughs> but we're, we're all really proud of you. And we're proud, we're proud of all of your colleagues, everybody who's, who is you know, on the front line, everybody who's making sacrifices, everybody who's putting themselves at risk for the greater good. Um, that, that just, that, you know, it fills me with, with incredible pride in, in our species. Um, we tend to focus on all the negative stuff, but there's so much positive coming out of this. There's, there's so much to be proud of. There's so much to rejoice in. Uh, there's a lot of, there, in, in, in spite of this, this horrible uh, dark crisis, there's a lot of beauty coming out of it as well and uh i definitely agree i want to i want to thank you for your part in all that (laughs) thank you thank you for having me this was really cool i mean i have heard about you and all your uh exploring of uh the world and other worlds um for a very long time since i was a kid um and so it's really cool to meet uh a real live astronaut (laughs) well thanks thanks josh okay everybody thanks for tuning in we're going to post this uh um on the interwebs uh, as soon as we can and uh, we'll see you next Friday. This is, and send comments uh, if, if there's particular people you want to, want to see in a conversation, if there's uh, subjects um, that you, you want, you know, we've got all the, all the social media channels, you know, fa- Facebook, Twitter, uh, you know, any, any way you want to contact us, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll take it under advisement. <laughs> so see, we'll, we'll see you. We'll see you next time. All the best. Thanks guys. again, Ron. See ya. Thanks, Josh.